Man, we're so glad that you're here this morning to celebrate this with the deacons and their wives, and uh, as a body, it's just a special moment. But you know, one of the most important things we do every Sunday morning is open the Word of God. I pray that you'll have your Bible with you this morning, and uh, open it up if you would. Uh, I'm going to ask you to turn to 1 Kings chapter 19 today. The title of the message that I'm going to share with you over these next few moments is called Surprise in the Darkness. We're into a series that talks about when God surprises us at the most amazing times in our life. Sometimes times when we're on the mountaintop, sometimes when we're in the valley. And this is really all about the valley. This is really all about what God does when we don't see him at work. And what God does when we're not aware of what his plan is. That's most of us a lot of the time. So if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn to 1 Kings 19. Let's stand together as we read a part of God's Word today, beginning in chapter 19, verse 1 uh, through verse 8. This is about the life of Elijah. Elijah has come off the mountaintop experience on Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel in chapter 17, chapter 18 was a confrontation between the prophet of God, who was Elijah, and the false prophets of Baal. There were 450 prophets of Baal, as well as 400 other false prophets that confronted Elijah on top of this mountain, and he confronted them. And so there was an, an amazing demonstration there where an altar was set up, and where the false prophets were able to call on the name of their God to see if he would consume the sacrifice with fire, and of course, it never happened. It was quite a comedy when you read about Elijah's admonition to them, call on him. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe if you shout louder, your God will hear and send fire down, but fire never came. They cut themselves. They were delirious in how they approached their God, but, but that God did not exist, and so that God did not respond. And then Elijah called on the name of the Lord God. And as he called on the name of the Lord, he called Israel back to God, and said to God, send the fire down. Basically, here is the altar that we prepared in front of you. He even watered the altar down several times with several vessels of water. So it was virtually, physically impossible for fire to consume that altar. But you know the story. If you've read 1 Kings chapter 18, the fire comes down from heaven and consumes the altar and consumes the sacrifice. And then at that point, the demonstration of God is so powerful that Elijah takes the 850 false prophets down to the brook Kishon, and he slays them there by the sword at that brook. Somebody ought to make a movie, all right? I talk about this every single week. Who can imagine the supernatural power placed on one man to slay 850 false prophets in that moment by himself as far as we can tell? That's amazing, isn't it? It's not something you see every day, right? No, the bottom line is God has worked in a powerful way, but 1 Kings chapter 19 is the other side of that mountain. Elijah believes that God has not given him complete victory because there is still Ahab and there's still Jezebel. Verse 1, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life away, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down, and he slept under a broom tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, 
There was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water, and he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank. And he went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the, the mount of God. Father, in Jesus' name, my prayer is that we will have insight and understanding that your Holy Spirit will illumine not only the text that we read and the words that we share today, but the hearts of every person in this room. Today, Father, I pray that you'll light up all the dark parts of our heart, all the discouraged places, all the disillusioned aspects of our faith. Father, those of us who are running from you, who have turned from you, who have given up on you, I pray you'll call back to you today. Father, in Jesus' name, let us See what you did with one and that you want to do with all. Surprise us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Please be seated if you would. Anybody follow marathons? Anybody read or watch marathons? Raise your hand if you watched the Mar Boston Marathon this week. That's what I thought. Four of us watched the Boston Marathon. Four of us. <laughs> now I've made a commitment to my wife, to the Lord, to everybody else that I am not going to run a marathon. I, every year my New Year's resolution is don't run a marathon and I've kept it every year. <laughs> I don't like running. In fact, on the back windshield of my truck I have 0.0. .0. That means I didn't run today. Some people brag about how they far they run. I brag about how far I don't run. But Elijah ran. Elijah, Elijah ran for 40 days and 40 nights away from the Lord. Really amazing when you look at what was going on in this man's life and what's going on in this story. And as we begin to view him for just a few minutes, I want you to keep in mind that, that your life and following God is a marathon. It's not a short distance. It's a marathon. It's going to have some pain. It's going to be some hardship. It's going to be some difficulty. The woman's leader, the woman's winner of the Boston Marathon on Monday said this. She said, there were a number of times during the marathon I wanted to give up. In fact, I got up thinking, I'm not going to run today. It was cold. It's mid-30 degrees, freezing cold for a runner of a marathon. And all throughout the course that day, she said, I wanted to give up. I even said to some of my fellow runners, what can I do to help you continue on? Because I cannot keep going. I'm going to quit this race. But lo and behold, she just kept going, and she ended up being the first American woman to win the Boston Marathon in 35 years. She didn't quit. And you and I, we can't quit either. Elijah tried to quit. The race was too long. Now, in 1 Kings 19 and, and in the verses that we read, we, we watched Elijah run. I want to put a map in front of you for just a few moments, and I want you to have a little bit of a historical lesson. Up on the upper left of that map is Mount Carmel. And so Elijah comes off Mount Carmel and goes to Jezreel. There he has that conversation with Ahab. And then upon that conversation, when he was threatened, he went south to Horeb. He went for about 260 miles, and over 40 days and 40 nights he goes south. As you watch that little picture on the screen in just a moment, go all the way south. This is the journey that he took, 40 days, 40 nights. Doesn't take that long to go 260 miles, but it was pretty evident to me. In those 40 days and 40 nights, this man was running from all the imaginary enemies that were coming his way, all the way south, the very southern part of Israel, Mount Horeb. 
Mount Horeb is where Moses met with God. Mount Horeb is where Elijah was going to meet with God. So there he is, exhausted, worn out, tired, hungry, and he has this encounter with God that is in a place that we can only call the darkness. I want you to see something about this encounter. First of all, I want you to notice the surprising disappointment in his life that brought him to this moment. In verse 9 and 10, we find the Lord coming and speaking to Elijah. And here's what it says. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Has God ever asked that question of you? What are you doing here? Not, what are you doing here this morning in church? But what are you doing here at this spot in your life? What are you doing involving yourself with the things that you're involved with, surrounding yourself with the things that you've surrounded yourself with? What are you doing at this journey, at this point in your spiritual life, your walk with God? What are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 10, he said, I've been very zealous or jealous for the Lord of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, only I, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. It's darkness for this guy. And as he begins to talk about all the things that he's dealing with, you need to see what's behind it. What's behind it is Elijah has wanted revival to come to God's people. He believes that on Mount Carmel is the very best place for that revival to take place. In fact, if you go back to chapter 18, verse 37, look at his prayer. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back to them, back to, to God, away from Baal worship, away from idolatry, back to you, God. That's what I want you to do. Display your power. Bring your people back. And even though God sent fire from heaven, not all in Israel turned. As a matter of fact, not all the false prophets were really dead. Even though 850 had died, there was still Ahab, the wicked king of Israel, and this very wicked wife whose name is Jezebel. Jezebel is famous for a lot of reasons, none of them good. So here's a man that obeyed. He saw victory, but it wasn't enough for him, and he was weary, and he was disappointed. He was worn out. You ever been in that place? You ever been in that place where you've done everything you know to do and the results aren't what you thought they should be? Where God doesn't show up quite enough for you? And where the victory's not complete enough for you? Where the results are not what you thought? Where you've done everything you know is physically possible and you've obeyed in every possible way that you know and yet it's not enough and, and you're worn out, you're weary, you're tired because of all that's going on around you. That's part of a marathon, and that's part of the Christian life. I had a friend that said to me a number of years ago, one of my counselors, one of the people that counseled me and have for 20 years as a part of my accountability team and gives me godly wisdom and, and godly counsel from time to time. He said this to me one day. He said, you know, when you're at a place where you're hungry, where you're anxious, where you're lonely, and when you're tired, it's time to halt. And it's time to stop and reassess where you are and what's going on in your life. Everything that that statement says is present in the life of Elijah. He's hungry. He's anxious, even angry. He is lonely. He's left his servant alone. He's gone another day into the wilderness by himself, all by himself, and he's tired. All these things are present in the life of Elijah at that moment. And I think they're present in our lives as well. 
We get so tired from working hard, maybe serving the Lord. We get lonely from feeling like we're the only one doing that. We just discouraged because progress doesn't seem to be what it ought to be. But don't give up. When you're at a place of H-A-L-T, halt, then what you want to do is not run, not make decisions, but wait on God. And more than that, don't give up on God because God's not through yet. Elijah's biggest mistake was thinking God was finished, that God had done all he could do, that God was not going to do anything more. He couldn't have been more wrong. Let me just say this about our lives, about our call. There are big stakes in front of you as a believer in Jesus today. Your life has an incredible amount of influence and importance that God is working through you in a special way. There's a lot at stake with your witness, a lot at stake with your prayer life, a lot at stake with your family, a lot at stake with your community. There are tremendous things at risk if you draw back and stop following God and stop serving God. Incredible numbers of people's lives will be disrupted in some way because God has placed you somewhere. He's using you somewhere, no matter how tired you are and no matter how weary you are. It's incredibly important to understand what's at risk. But even larger than that, in the body of Christ, some amazing things are at risk. If we get tired, if we get weary, if we become an Elijah spirit that gives up in the darkness, uh, the, the lostness that's out there today desperately needs to be impacted by people of light that don't give up, that don't say, I've been turned down too many times for a gospel conversation. I'm just not going to do that anymore. Abortion is at stake. If we stop fighting for the lives of the unborn, what will happen to those unborn? Racism is at stake. We want to eradicate racism. But what happens if we don't stay the course and don't move as we should? Injustice is something that will, will fall as it is without us stepping up and having a sense of justice. An amazing number of things are at risk, and we want to win them on our watch. God is able to do that, but we can't give up. Don't give up personally. Don't give up corporately. Don't conclude the game before God has a final word. There are times when we're like Elijah when we only see our faith and forget that God has a whole lot of other people working alongside him that you don't know about. He will eventually tell Elijah, Elijah, you're not by yourself. I have 7,000 people in Israel that have not bent the knee to Baal. You just don't know about it. Elijah was overwhelmed with self-pity and self-piety. Self-pity in, where were you, God? Self-piety in, I alone. I alone am faithful. Let me tell you something about self-pity and self-piety. Self-pity and self-piety will get you nowhere with God. It'll get you nowhere in life. This is the moment where God moves into Elijah's consciousness in these next few moments and wakes him up and kicks him out of the cave and says something very important to him. So there's a surprising moment here in his disappointment. So when we look at this man Elijah and the tunnel vision he has, we need to ask the question today. Here's the question. Who has God become in your life that you want to give up on him? Who has God become in your life that you want to say, well, God can't, can't complete the course with me. He can't finish the race with me. God can't win the battle for me. Who has God become? Who has he become? Theologically, as you read the Bible, how do you picture 
that you're going to give up on God, that God is somehow not going to come through, that he's somehow not going to be victorious. The things that we sing every week, the things that we read in the Bible, God will have the victory whether you go on or not. Why do we give up on God? How can we theologically say God cannot be trusted? We're not prosperity Christians. We're pampered Christians. We can't handle the discomfort of going hard in a marathon. We give up on serving too easy. We give up on church too easy. We give up on God too easy. But let me say something to you today. God never gives up on you. That's the truth. God never gives up on you. He never gave up on Elijah. Even though Elijah was saying, take my life, I'm no better than my father. God will never give up on any of his children. A surprising disappointment. But there's also a surprising encounter because God's going to talk to Elijah. He's going to help him know what to do. In verse 11, here's what the story says. The Bible says, And he said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? Same question. Notice that's the same question. And he gives the same answer. He said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with a sword, and I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now look at what God's done here in this few moments. Come out of the cave. Let me show you something, Elijah. And so there's this huge wind that begins to blow, the Bible says, and it's rending the rocks, it's breaking the rocks up. This wind is so powerful that the rocks can't even resist it. And obviously the power of God's being displayed. Then the earthquake begins to occur. And certainly Elijah feels the movement underneath his feet. And he senses that God's ability to, to, to blow that wind and to shake the earth in the way he is is a demonstration of his power. And then fire begins to appear. And he sees the fire. And then the gentle blowing of a breeze. And the Bible says the Lord's not in the wind. And he's not in the earthquake. And he's not in the fire. But then the breeze and then a quiet word. To Elijah, looking for God, listening for God, is a powerful message. You know, we like for God to do things in a sensational way, don't we? We like the fire falling down from heaven. I would imagine that would have been a powerful moment that day on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18 where Elijah saw the fire falling down after he prayed. Amazing. And then after that, he began to pray that it would not rain in the, uh, the whole land of Israel for three and a half years. And then he prayed again there at the end of the chapter that rain would come back and he saw the rain come back. Powerful demonstration of, of God's abilities. Sensational, amazing, convincing. But when God speaks to us, it's not for the purpose of sensation. It's not for the purpose of just demonstrating the miraculous, as exciting as it is. We like the fire to fall. We like the sword of God's wrath on others. And one day we may see it, and the reality is it's far more dreadful than you and I can possibly imagine. It's as though God is saying to Elijah, I can do anything, including eliminate Ahab and Jezebel. You know it by now. But what I really want to do is I want to get you to listen to the word I'm going to give you. Instead of a sensation, let me give you a revelation. I've got something to say to you. 
try to put yourself in those shoes for just a few moments. I want your eyes less on my miraculous power and more on my word. You don't have the discernment to interpret your situation well. You don't, you don't read the scenario very well. You can't see the whole picture. So get past the sensation and get to the revelation. Don't trust what you see. Listen to him speak. That's my admonition to you today. You remember when Peter was in the boat and Jesus was walking on the water in the Gospels? And Jesus says to Peter, after Peter said, Lord, is it you? He says, come, simple command. And yet Peter had a dilemma there. He could look at the situation that he saw, which was storms and waves, and he could, he, could, he could deal with the reality that he knew was real, that he as a human being could not walk on that water, and yet Jesus was beckoning him to get out of the boat and come. So for the moment, Peter had to not pay attention to what he saw, but just listen to what he heard. And so he got out of the boat. And he walked on the water until when? Until he got his eyes off Christ and began to look back at the storms and then he sank. I like to say to people, if God tells you to get out of the boat and get on the water, get out of the boat. But if he doesn't say get out of the boat, stay in the boat. <laughs> but it's all hinged on what he says. Don't look at the wind rending the rock. Don't look at the earthquake. Don't look at the fire. Listen to the word. Because all those things will come and go, but the word of God abides forever, amen? It never passes away. And God is a God who is not silent. He communicates. He wants to speak to us. So listen. When I struggle, I know I need to listen better. When I don't like the way things are playing out, I know I have to withdraw. I have to halt. And take a step back and say, God, what are you doing? I can't interpret it by what I see. I have to interpret it by what I hear by what you say, by how you're working and how you're moving in my life. And when I struggle, I know I need to listen better or I need to remember what he's first said to me already. And there have been a number of times in my personal life with the Lord where I've been surprised by how quietly he speaks and how still I have to be before I can hear him. And for a guy that talks a lot, that's hard to do. Be quiet, be still, know that I'm God. You'll hear a word behind you saying, this is the way you walk again when you turn to the right or to the left. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me all the way through the Bible. Listen, listen, listen. Read the word of God. Listen to him as he speaks to us. The greatest moments in my life have been preceded by times of silence where God has spoken clearly. And when I obey him, amazing things happen that I could never possibly imagine. But they're all preceded by those words that he gives me. That's true of you as well. Before Jesus sent his disciples out to do all the miracles they did, he, he drew them close together and said, come be with me. Come get to know me. Come listen to me. He says to believers today, let my word abide in you and you and me. That's how you bear fruit. You can't do anything apart from me. Walk with me. Listen to me. And that's what Elijah had to learn. And finally, there's a surprising command. That's really where this ends. In verse 15, God begins to get specific with Elijah. And I want you to notice what he says in verse 15. And the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. In other words, you can abbreviate that by hearing these two words, go back. Go back to where you ran from. Go back to your fears. Go back to face the enemy. Go back. 
And when ye arrive, ye shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi, ye shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elijah the son of Shaphat of Abel, Mahola, ye shall anoint to be prophet in your place. In other words, go back and do your work, the work I've called you to do. I've called you to go and to speak for me and to anoint others to speak to me, for me. And listen at the result of this. Verse 17, the promise. And the one who escaped from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escaped from the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death. Yet I have 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Go back and go to work. Wow. Sometimes we want more sympathy with God from that, right? So let's look on the screen to get the map. So on this map, Elijah has gone down all the way south, 260 miles, and now God says, okay, go back to where you came from and then go on into the wilderness of Damascus. Uh, you'll think after running 40 days and 40 nights that would be enough. But no, God says, okay, you ran. Time for you to go back. Go back and face what you weren't willing to face. Go back and obey where you weren't willing to obey. Go back and change what you weren't willing to change. Go back. Because if you go back, and if you learn that lesson, I can use you. And if you go back and do what I've caused you to do, it's amazing. God talks to us about going back a great deal. Go back from where you started to disobey. God takes us back a lot. Back to Shatim. We looked at that last week as the children of Israel had to go back to that strangely named city in order to recover and regroup and move into Jericho. Go back to the wilderness. It's as though God is saying, let's go back and take care of that. Go back and take care of that disobedience. Instead of disobedience, this time obey. Go back to that place of bitterness. And this time, instead of holding the bitterness, forgive. Go back to that place of fear. Instead of holding fear, this time face it with faith. Go back to the place of confusion. I get clarity from God. Go back and listen to him again as to what he really said that he was calling us to do. Go back and get it right, Elijah. There's a lot of that we need to do, right? My prayer is that the power of the Holy Spirit today would be working in such a way where you're seeing where you need to go back to, things you need to go back and face again, knowing that God wants to teach that lesson to you in a powerful way. And let me just say this to you. I think it's very important today to understand two things. First of all, God's not being hard on us. He's being holy on us. God is taking you back to mold and shape you to make you more like his son Jesus. And that's the way discipleship works. It's discipline, it's difficult, it's hard, but it's part of going back. It's shaping you the way you ought to be shaped from the beginning. What God had always designed for you to be. He's not being hard on you. He's not being difficult on you. He's making you grow up. I've had six children. I've raised six children. Still have six children. <laughs> As I raised them, we would ask them to do certain things, and they would think it was so difficult. And I used to laugh because they have no idea what life was like in the 60s and 70s. And my dad used to laugh because they had no, I had no idea what life was like in the 30s and 40s. We're pampered. We think it ought to be easy. We think we're owed something. God's going to make you holy, and it'll be difficult if you don't work with him. <laughs> Go back and let him make you holy. Here's why God wants to do that. God wants to make you holy because he works through people and he needs to grow us to use us. God wants you to be holy because he works through people. He wants us to multiply leaders. That's exactly what he told 
this man to do. Elijah, go back and you anoint these prophets who are going to carry on their ministries. God's not being hard on you. He's being holy on you. And then one more thing. Your greatest fears will most likely never happen. Do you remember what Elijah feared so badly? He feared the embarrassment of a gruesome, bloody death at the hands of a wicked Baal worshiper, Jezebel, and her husband Ahab. He feared that he, the prophet of the Lord, would be massacred and somehow embarrassed the people of Israel. But God surprised Elijah, didn't he? Because the person that really needed to be afraid was Jezebel. So when Elijah went back and began to obey God, he anointed some prophets. One of them was Jehu. If you remember the story, it was Jezebel that needed to be afraid because in 2 Kings chapter 9, Jehu had her thrown down from the wall in one of the most notorious passages in the Bible. She was thrown off the wall. The dogs came along, wild packs of dogs, and ate her flesh. Only her skull and her hands and her feet were found a gruesome death. And Elijah was afraid that she was going to put him to death. What a surprise when it all worked out at the end in that wild way. But even more surprising is the fact that Elijah was afraid that he was going to be put to death. Does anybody know how Elijah died? Elijah never died. He never died. The Bible says that Elijah was caught up in a whirlwind into heaven. The Bible tells us about Elijah that he was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and Moses. The Bible tells us about Elijah that he will walk the streets of Jerusalem as one of the two witnesses during the tribulation period. Elijah's still not dead. And yet there at that moment, in that cave, he said, Lord, take my life. I'm no better than anyone else, no better than my fathers. And God says, go back. I'm going to use you. And God still has not finished with Elijah. This is one of the most amazing stories in the Bible. And I want you to know what this says to you. God is not through with you yet. That's what that says. Keep following God. Don't give up on God. He's not giving up on you. I love looking at the lives of people like this and their faith and their battles. Let me say something to you as I close this today. Faith is a war and a marathon. You'll have a lot of battles. You'll want to give up frequently. But the reason you don't have to do that is because somebody went before you who did not quit. His name was Jesus. He did not quit. He walked through every persecution you can imagine every discomfort you'll ever have. He walked through every pain, every heartbreak, every agony you can ever imagine going through. He walked through it all. And when given the choice of going to the cross or not, he chose the cross. He didn't give up. He didn't quit. He was scourged. He was beaten. His beard was plucked out. He was mocked. He was spat upon. And he died on the cross. And he still didn't give up. And he was buried in the ground. And he still didn't give up. And on the third day, he rose again. He's alive today, standing at the right hand of God for you. Let me tell you something. He didn't give up. You don't need to give up today. But what you do need to do is come to him. One of the greatest things you can do is come and embrace the life of Jesus. Come and embrace his love. He never gives up on you. I heard a song today about the reckless love of Christ. He never gives up on you. You're here today because you were supposed to hear this message. And you were supposed to see the life of a man that nearly gave up. And is glad now he didn't. And you need not give up on the love of God. 
and the power of God. Would you stand with me for just a moment? I'm going to ask our, our prayer partners to come to the front today. And all around the front here will be people that want to pray with you today. And you know, one of the things that I would want you to know today as they come, as they prepare, is that you can, you can take about a 30-second walk to the front of this room. And somebody will be here to pray with you. Somebody will be here to answer questions that you may have. They'll be here to dialogue with you. It may be today that you need to just come and embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. What an incredible decision that is, an important one. If you've never done that today, I want to invite you to come now. It may be that you've made that decision, but now you're on the verge of giving up. Maybe you're running. Or maybe God tells you to go do something and it just seems unfathomable that you can do that. You fear it. You're worried about it. I want you to pray with somebody today. Because their faith and their counsel can encourage you to stay in the course and to stay in the race. Let's bow together. Father, in Jesus' name today, thank you so much for the life of Elijah. Thank you that you never gave up on him. Thank you that today there will be those that are close to giving up that are being called now to run the race completely. And Father, help them to know your love and your ability and help them to hear your voice. And Father, I pray like Elijah that we'll run the race to the very end and see what you can do with us. Father, thank you so much for your love. Thank you for much for the sacrifice of Jesus. I ask this today in Jesus' name. Amen.